Hey everyone, welcome to You Scared of This. I'm Eli Phillips. I'm David Dykus. And this is a weekly podcast where we watch every episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, Nickelodeon's hit 90s horror series for kids. And then we talk about them for probably longer than they need to be talked about. And we want to welcome you all to Season 2 of both Are You Afraid of the Dark and of our podcast. It's been a long and uh, interesting road to get to this point. I know we told our viewers we would never sell out and change our name to please the squares, but we're doing that. We're doing we're sorry. We're doing exactly that. That is the exact thing that we're doing. We have removed the word shit from the title, and we demand that you refer to this podcast only as you scared of this henceforth. Yes. Uh, it was the only way we could get on iTunes. Still working on that too, but it's coming. Yes. So, beginning of season two, very exciting. Few changes have happened. The word shit is out of our title, like Eric from the Midnight Society. Eric is dead. Now let's talk about that for a second. Uh, let's just, let's, let's dive right into this episode, The Tale of the Final Wish. Talk about the kind of fanfare that they give Eric when he leaves. They give him zero fanfare. That's right. It is like he committed some heinous crime and everyone has agreed to just not speak of him under any circumstances. No one ever mentions Eric again, as far as we know. The Tale of the Final Wish is the first episode of season two. Uh, it is directed by executive producer DJ McHale and written by series favorite Chloe Brown. Um, this episode first aired on June 19th, 1993, and like we said, it starts with all of the Midnight Society members except one gathered around the campfire. Eric is missing, and no one says a damn word about it. Yeah, usually in future episodes when a character departs from the show, we're given some explanation, like they moved to a different state or their parents got a new job. Eric is not given any sort of send-off. It's as though he was completely and totally retconned from the series. However, in his absence... His protege, Frank, has stepped up to fill that butthead-shaped hole in the Midnight Society. Yeah, Frank, maybe that's what was happening here, is that uh, <laughs> when David brought Frank to the Midnight Society in the first in the first episode of the show, you know, we saw Eric roll his eyes. Maybe Eric was like, maybe Eric thought, knew that he was being replaced. He was like, well, this is it. My, my clock is ticking now. This episode is a Kristen episode, which is never a good sign. Nope. Uh, and it begins with Kristen sitting by the campfire, reading from a book of, of gruesome Brothers Grimm-style fairy tales. If thou wilt, cut off the heads of thy two children, and besmear me with their blood, I shall receive life again. Besmear me? That's disgusting. She's reading this book to David. Did you recognize David at first? David has gotten a new haircut, haircut and he's wearing the uh, traditional plaid button-up of a uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark butthead. It looks like David had has aged about five years between seasons. Like, he has seriously grown. I thought they had introduced a new character to replace Eric and just, like, hadn't mentioned him. I thought he was like Roy from The Simpsons, where some new guy had just shown up. Yeah, he's the Bran Stark of this show, where, like, in between seasons, he ages radically. And he looks like he went from being about, what would you say, like 14 years old? Even younger than that. In the first season, he looks to be like 12. No, 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 no. You don't, you don't know what a 12-year-old looks like. In the first season, David looks like he is about 13, maybe 14 years old tops. Well, here he looks like he's old enough to drive. He looks like he might be old enough to smoke. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Kristen is, she's dressed like a waitress at medieval times or something. Because as we know, Kristen likes to wear costumes. And so she is uh, she's dressed up in fantasy renaissance garb. And she is reading from a leather-bound book of fairy tales 
to her assumed boyfriend, David. Frank, the new butthead in town, comes in and immediately dismisses this as childish. Fairy tales? Weak, Chris. Very weak. Uh, the other members of the Midnight Society all show up and defend Kristen, saying that, no, fairy tales used to have, you know, blood and gore and kids eating each other. And, of course, Be- Betty Ann is the person most excited about, about this discussion. Of course. Uh, Frank is still skeptical. Kristen finally begins her story, giving it the awesome intro. A fairy tale can soon become a scary tale. She throws the powdered milk coffee creamer into the fire and begins the tale of the final wish. We get kind of a long opening sequence here with the tale of the final wish. I'm going to try to sum it up here. We meet our young protagonist, a 13-year-old girl named Jill. Uh, In this opening sequence, we learn that Jill loves fairy tales. She has a butthead older brother who very creepily hides in her room and scares her. Yeah. And everyone in her family is kind of fed up with her childishness. They all think she needs to grow up and get out of this fairy tale stuff. Which I don't necessarily think they are unjustified in this. We should, as we're painting this opening picture, we should clarify that, like, the director has made a deliberate point of making this girl look like she is stunted in her maturity. She has porcelain dollhouses and like children's books on the shelf in her room we they make a point of showing the children's books and she has posters of dragons and she looks very childish we're told that jill this is a point of contention between her and her family her brother gives her shit about it and then the next sequence we get uh jill is at school and she's about to learn that being a teenager is no fairy tale told that Jill's family is not helping the situation and neither are her friends. And while Jill is in the library checking out uh, books on fairy tales, she checks out a book called The Sandman and Other Tales. Our focus is actually on her two blonde preppy friends. Who are themselves checking things out in the library. Oh yes. Oh yes. They have their eyes not in the books but on a strapping young lad across across the room. He's so fine. I'd talk to him, but I'd probably drool or something. Yeah, they, they've been hypnotized. This kid, <laughs> I laughed very loudly when I saw him for the first time. He's wearing maybe the most ridiculous outfit in the entire series. And that counts costumes, ghosts, monsters, and anything Kristen has worn. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, so that you know that he's a cool guy in 1993. He is wearing pale blue jeans, maybe acid wash jeans, and a uh, backwards cap, but he's wearing this with a white button-up and tie for some reason. It makes no sense. Yeah, uh, the girls that are checking him out are wearing, like, 90s patterned windbreakers, and, and they make sense, but he is sort of this bizarre hodgepodge, and and I don't know. Apparently, this look was like Spanish fly in the early 90s, because these two girls are just creeping themselves over whatever this character's name is. Yeah, so he... uh as fuck i don't know anyone's name in this story like i care so little about this story so as well pause pause let me look up let me look up what his name is (laughs) no name given yeah no no name for this boy okay so uh at the library they're checking out this guy she's checking out books and as she walks to one of the shelves to get a book he very very plainly Turns on and looks at her ass. I have the freeze frame here right in front of me, and yes, he is not even subtle about it. Like, 
He's obviously checking her out, and the two best friends even say, oh my gosh, he checked her out. Did you see that? He checked her out. Did he check her out? But we should clarify that, like, he does not look at her face. He does not look at any other part of her. His direction must have been turn around and stare at her ass and then turn back to the card catalog because that is exactly what happens here. So everyone in this library except for Jill only has one thing on their minds. Jill returns to sit down with her hot and bothered friends and surprisingly backwards baseball cap suit and jeans man follows her and sits down. Yeah he comes over and tries to strike up a conversation with her. Uh, He's obviously into Jill and her two friends are so pissed off about this that they do anything they can to uh, to embarrass Jill. So they start pulling Jill's fairy tales out of her backpack and making fun of them. And they pull her troll doll out of her backpack. Uh, the boy's like, oh, cool, trolls. I used to play with these when I was a little kid. And the two friends are like, oh, Jill plays with them now. And Jill flees. Yeah, she grabs her backpack, leaves her books, leaves her troll doll, and just runs away. We get another sequence in uh, Jill's bedroom where she's having a dream that Prince Cool Guy is coming to, like, rescue her from her miserable existence. I've come to awaken you, Sleeping Beauty. Only she wakes up and it's the douchebag brother John with a scary Halloween mask on. This is the best sequence in this episode, right? I guess this is the second time in less than ten minutes that we've seen John sneak into his sister's room and, like, and it's kind of creepy. Yeah, I guess that's true. He clearly has a fixation on this. I guess he's just a bored butthead. But the fact that he's clear, like, every time he's hiding under her bed or, like, on top of her while Watching she's her sleep. Just, yeah, it's uncomfortable. So she runs John out of the room a second time, and she sits by the window holding her book of fairy tales called The Sandman. And uh, she literally looks out her window and wishes upon a star. She pulls a real home alone here and wishes to make her family disappear. What's so wrong about wanting to live in a world where dreams come true and you can wish on a star? I wish I could, and I wish everybody would just leave me alone. Well, Eli, she's about to find that living without her family is no fairy tale. She runs out of her room only to discover that everyone in her family is gone. The house is empty. Yep, they've all vanished. Well, I say the house is empty. There is one person left because she peeks under the bed, and who pops out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who who else would be under her bed this time? Special guest star Bobcat Colthwaite bursts from beneath the bed, <laughs> dressed like some kind of purple pirate man, and says... <laughs> yeah, Bobcat Goldthwaite's face emerges from under her, her bed, screams at her, and when she tries to <laughs> run away, she's sucked under the, the bed by vacuum force. And this leads us to the first commercial break of the show. When we come back, we entered the most bizarre, surreal sequence in the entire show up to this point. Jill is in a infinite blackness. She's She's been sucked into her bed by this weird, like, vacuuming. And uh, she fell through time and space into this infinite blackness where she landed on a bed, surrounded by sort of surrealist images. There are clocks everywhere, and, like, I think there's a row of wigs. Is that what I'm looking at? There are two rows of models made to look like the backs of people's heads, like the back of a female head and the back of a male head. And there are, like, dozens of these sculptures going off into the distance. Yeah, she wanders through a room that is filled with fog and a whole bunch of people floating in midair asleep. I 
really liked this sequence. It does not add a lot to the plot, it doesn't even make a lot of sense once the story's over. But as a way to pad the episode out, you could do worse than this weird dream sequence. Yeah, we gave DJ McHale a hard time during the episode The Tale of the Sorcerer's Apprentice because of all of the Dutch angles, you know, the number of times the camera was askew. And in this scene, as she's walking through this bizarre, like, black labyrinth of weird images, the camera starts to sort of spin and tilt in different directions. And in this moment, it works so much better than it did in any scene in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, the feel that they're going for here is obviously surreal and strange, and they've, they've nailed it. So props to them for that. This episode doesn't make a lot of sense, but the moments when it's going for feeling, it seems to nail them all right. It adds a lot to what is, spoiler alert, an otherwise sort of flat episode. I mentioned the tale of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, uh, which was an episode that often came across more weird than scary. And what happens next uh, definitely puts this episode in that same camp, because out from the shadows emerges purple silk bed robe wearing... Sandman, Bobcat Goldthwait. Don't touch that! You'll ruin everything! Who, who are you? Who do you think I am? Take a guess! Bobcat Goldthwait, what voice is he doing for this character? Oh, it's just his voice. That's just his voice. <laughs> he's, he's not doing anything other than himself. I'm not familiar with the work of Bobcat Goldthwait. I assumed he was going for some kind of weird, like... Robin Williams in Aladdin thing here because he has he's just growling out these lines from beginning to end. It's it's the it sounds like he's having to make a very concentrated effort to do it. No no no, it's his weird Muppet voice that he always does. Yeah, so uh, Bobcat Goldthwait emerges again. He's wearing a pur- purple silk robe and purple silk nightcap and dreadlocks, and he explains to Jill in the goofiest manner possible that he is the Sandman and he has taken her to the land of dreams and fairy tales per her wish. Young miss, you're in the land of Nod, where everyone goes to dream. Land of Nod? And who are you? Uh, isn't it obvious? I'm the Sandman. Bobcat is just hamming it up through this entire thing. I love the moment where he throws magic sand in his own face while he's standing up. Yeah. At one point, he just puts himself to sleep for a few seconds. Excuse me. Needs more snooze. Getting high on his own supply. He's just sort of like a, a a Mad Hatter type character. He's like the Mad Hatter plus the Cheshire Cat. That's a fairy tale. Exactly. Now we're getting somewhere. He gives a lot of exposition in this goofy voice, and he explains that she wanted to be in a fairy tale, and now she is. She doesn't have to deal with her family or anyone who was giving her grief in the waking world. Now she can stay here forever. The rest of the episode is pretty much just her saying that she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to stay in the Land of Nod, and she doesn't want to be without her family. Uh, She almost immediately recognizes that this was a horrible thing that has happened to her. And when Bobcat insists that she has to stay here, she tries to flee. She uh, she runs away from him back through the surreal imagery and onto the bed that she landed on. She's looking around, trying to find a way out. And Bobcat is just sort of like laughing at her. At one point, he has a giant tome called it, with the title on the front that says The Tale of the Final Wish. That is apparently the story that they are enacting as they go. And he keeps repeating to Jill that you can't change the story, that she's now in this fairy tale, and it's going to go one way that cannot be altered. Uh, Jill doesn't believe this. She runs. Uh, Bobcat, inv- Bobcat, the Sandman invites her to uh, 
to sample a few other fairy tales. And this is where we get to a point that I want to talk to you about, Eli. Yeah. She opens the door, mm-hmm. throws it open, and the Red Queen from uh, Owls in Wonderland is there with a huge axe. Yep. Oh, is Alice in Wonderland a fairy tale? Like, we know who wrote that story. I mean, I don't think knowing who wrote a story keeps it from being a fairy tale. But uh, no, I'm, I'm going to defend you on this one. Alice in Wonderland is not at all a fairy tale. Like, you can't just go around saying that anything that is fiction counts as a fairy tale. Or anything that was adapted by Walt Disney. Anyway, she immediately closes that door. She runs in a door and finds the witch from uh, Hansel and Gretel. Looking a whole lot like the witch from the tale of the pinball wizard, I might add. And she keeps running and running through this dreamscape. She finds all of her friends and family, like, floating in the air asleep. She can't wake them up. There's no one here who can save her. I feel like we're glossing over a lot here, but this really is a lot of... Padding. Yeah, there's a lot of slow motion. There's a lot of redundant stuff. At one point, Bobcat Goldthwait's head, like, appears out of the void, like, fucking Zordon, just to taunt her. I didn't want this! This isn't what I wished for! Yes, you did! Welcome to your fairy tale! <laughs> yeah, I actually really enjoyed that moment. That was probably my favorite part of, of the entire thing, was the giant floating Bobcat Goldthwait head appearing. So after this surreal romp, she finds her way back to, uh, his lair, and he has a gigantic hourglass filled with, like, I guess the sands of time. Yeah. Bobcat Sandman has had enough of this bullshit. He threatens to uh, put her to sleep like the rest of her family, and it's at this point that she realizes that, oh, apparently he can change the the course of the narrative in this story. Maybe there's hope for her yet. This is a really great, wonderful moment, because it's the most interaction that we get between she and Bobcat. Jill has tears in her eyes, and he's sitting on his throne, which is actually just a metronome, and and she's threatening to break his hourglass, and he's he's insisting that he will stop her. Bobcat can't really do a very intimidating turn, and so he bounces back and forth just between being goofy and being really nervous. He's like, please don't break that! And uh, and then he's like, no, don't break that! But it's basically the same thing every time. He just adjusts his eyebrows slightly. This isn't the way your fairy tale's supposed to end! Yeah, that's the problem with this this character and Bobcat Goldthwait's uh, delivery, is that he has, he has no range. Yeah, there's absolutely no threat. He has one mode of delivery, <laughs> and that is... <laughs> It's just bonkers. It's just that voice, and you can't be scary with that voice at all. Bobcat Goldthwait plays the Sandman as though he, Bobcat Goldthwait, woke up one morning and accidentally became the Sandman. Like, I want to see the story where he got that job, and it's like a Tim Allen Santa Claus type thing where he killed the real Sandman, and so now he has to be the Sandman, but he's not very good at it. Because that's what's going on here, is it's Bobcat Goldthwait as Bobcat Goldthwait doing a bad job of being the Sandman. Do you think he just showed up to set wearing, like, his bathrobe <laughs> from that morning? <laughs> they actually just brought a bunch of, like, black drop cloths and filmed it in Bobcat Goldthwait's own bedroom. <laughs> he could not be bothered to change out of his own purple robe and pajamas. Yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> Costume? Nope. Nope. I don't think so. Do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> okay, Bobcat, we have this we have this elaborate Sandman costume for you. That looks like a lot of work. <laughs> Okay, Bobcat. I'm high as hell. <laughs> we have these lines we would like you to read. Read? Uh, it, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Jill Jill threatens to shatter this giant hourglass that apparently is the source of the Sandman's power. For some reason. Picks it up. 
shatters it on the ground, and uh, through the magic of some very cheesy special effects, wakes up back in her bed with her family, surrounded by her family. The entire conflict here was Jill got sucked into a nightmare, ran around for a while, and then got out of the nightmare pretty easily. It's not even like there was a Chekhov's gun where that, that hourglass was hinted at being the solution or where it was in the background or anything. She just runs up to it, says, I'm going to break this. He says, no, don't. And then she does. Yeah, it's very much a deus ex machina. It's just like, we have to get her out of the dream world at some point. What's the biggest prop we have that she can break? So she uh, she wakes up in her own bed screaming, and her parents come in to check on her for the second night in a row. Her dad is complaining about the fact that they keep having to check on her. She's so excited that they're all there. She's suddenly relieved, even her butthead brother, John. And uh, and Jill says, you know, I think I'm ready to give up these fairy tales. She goes back to bed. But of course, there had to be a twist. The camera pushes into this book of Sandman fairy tales. And the wind blows through the window and opens the book to the very last page. Where Bobcat Goldthwait delivers this epilogue. The little girl went back to sleep. Promising never to believe in fairy tales again. If only she knew, she would have never gone back in that bed again. <laughs> this is supposed to be scary. This is supposed to be the unhappy twist. But I'm sorry. Nothing this man says is scary. <laughs> I can't take anything that Bobcat Goldthwait says seriously no. in that voice. No. The Yeah, so the camera zooms in on the final page of the book, and we cut back to the Midnight Society. Kristen is looking smug as hell. She feels like a big man. Every time Kristen ends a story, she always says the end, like she's putting the period on the greatest sentence ever spoken. The end. So, don't take fairy tales lightly. Of course, because this is an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, Frank has completely changed his tune by the end of the story. Uh, now he's all about fairy tales, and he wants to see the aforementioned story where kids are eating each other. Frank does something really hilarious here. To show that he's changed his mind, he gets down on one knee and takes Kristen by the hand and is uh, is trying to act like some noble individual, like a prince from a fairy tale, and he apologizes to her and asks to read the book. The best part of this moment is watching David, who's sitting in between them, looking really worried that he's going to have to fight Frank. Like, he's, he stares at Frank holding Kristen's hand, and his eyes get huge, and his jaw drops like he doesn't know what to do. Oh, man, I hadn't even noticed that. That's great. Yeah, it's a really wonderful little character moment. Gary laughs at all of them. Uh, everyone chuckles together. It's funny to me, because this is sort of the opposite of how the tale of the pinball wizard ended. Uh, you know, everyone was enthusiastic about video games, and then Gary told a story that scared them enough that they never wanted to play video games again. Everyone was enthusiastic about fairy tales, and Kristen told a, a story that just made Frank want to read fairy tales. So so the lesson here being, modern video games, bad. Centuries-old fairy tales, awesome. Yeah, yeah, and they all stand around. The guys, the guys all lean over and uh, look into the book of fairy tales together while the girls all talk about how great, how great Kristen's outfit is. Except Dave. Dave turns to face Kristen and takes sort of a, a protective posture. Yeah, they've really... Their relationship has blossomed in between seasons one and two. That's that's some nice uh, subtext there. Yeah, uh, something are you afraid of the darkest? Not known for <laughs> subtext. Yeah, and uh, the camera pans out. Rock an awesome theme song. All right, and so with that, we are one episode into season two of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah, with Eric out of the picture, 
and with a new, more mature Midnight Society, uh, what did you think of the start to this season? The tale of the final wish is not a great story. It has fun moments, um, which is good. You know, I enjoyed the the surreal moments, like we said. If I was a little kid, the the camera doing dramatic zoom ins on the uh, on the Queen of Hearts and the witch from Hansel and Gretel would have been maybe not scary, but it would have been fun. Uh, you know, it would have been the fun kind of scary. Bobcat Goldthwait was goofy and maybe in some childish mind menacing, but never like overly threatening. So this episode feels aged down a little bit, but it's definitely not the worst episode we've ever seen. So it's not the worst start that season two could have had. I'm going to make the argument, this is the best Kristen story we've gotten so far. You're right. I agree that this is not a great episode, but it, compared to the other two Kristen stories, Hungry Hounds and uh, The Prom Queen, this one at least had a very strong sense of style. And it had two spectacular scenes in it, which is more than enough to redeem it. The scene of the uh, of Jill exploring the dreamscape, and of course, the epic scene in the library with uh, the cool kid. Yeah, I, I definitely had some laughs in this episode, and it did have more style than either of others. You know, so far, if I'm going to rank the Kristen episodes, I'm going to say probably this one, and then a close second would be the tale of the prom queen, with uh, the tale of the hungry hounds being, of course, in dead last, since we ranked that as the as our least favorite episode from season one. So, you know, Kristen's improving her storytelling. I thoroughly enjoyed all of the interactions with the Midnight Society in this episode, uh, even without Butthead Eric. I thought that Frank filled those shoes very wonderfully. The interactions between David and Kristen were good. I always enjoy Betty Ann's enthusiasm. So uh, not, not a bad episode, not a bad way to start off. I would say season two started off just as good as season one. It, it succeeds... In spite or because of Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> yeah, I'm really sad. You know, I know that we get some returning characters in stories. We've mentioned the fact that Doc- Dr. Vink from the first episode will come back and that Sardo will come back. Uh, I'm really sad that Bobcat Goldthwait as the Sandman does not make a return appearance later in the series. Maybe that's for the best. <laughs> if they reboot this series, I hope Bobcat Goldthwait returns in the first episode. One last question. Yeah? That I guess we still have to ask. Go ahead. You scared of this? Absolutely not. Are you scared of this? No. Alright, there's our final judgments. So with that taken care of, we can uh, we can go ahead and wrap up this episode. Uh, I'll say thank you all for listening. Thank you for joining us for season for the beginning of season two. Uh, you know, I know there have been a couple of changes, so uh, thank you for bearing with us through those. And we will see you next week. David, do you want to tell us what we're watching next week? Next week, we will be watching The Tale of the Midnight Madness, uh, which will also be directed by Deej McHale and also written by Chloe Brown. So the team back again. Yeah. And this tale will be told by Frank. Mm-hmm. His first tale in some time. And I don't want to spoil too much. But I think we're going to be seeing a familiar face in this story. Very excited about the tale of the Midnight Madness. This is something that we've been waiting for since very early in season one. So uh, definitely tune in for that. And with all of that in mind, we'll see you next week. And I hereby declare this episode of You Scared of This closed. Follow us on social media. Links in the description. See you guys next week. Bye. She never would have gotten in that bed again. <laughs> Randy! <laughs> Dollar! Don't you get. <laughs>
<laughs> Don't you get that bed again. Don't forget your Jansport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much stuff I'm going to have to cut out.